Well, um, good morning, everyone. We are in Joshua chapter 24 and going to, uh, Lord willing, uh, finish our study there. Back up a little bit here. So uh, in the last three chapters of Joshua, um, we basically get to hear three sermons by Joshua. And you'll see that even though the audience changes a little bit, the message really doesn't change very much. And, and hopefully you'll see in this bit of repetition, you'll see the conviction of a leader who is really wanting to make his point stick. Um, he's wanting to make it stick because he's maybe a little doubtful as to whether it will. And, uh, but he's, he's wanting to drive the points home that he makes. And so hopefully um, some of the things that he wants to emphasize to his crew will, um, will make an impact on us as well. Uh, first of all, let's, uh, let's start at verse 1 of chapter 24 in Joshua. It says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. So before we get in too much, uh, let's take just a little geography review. Um, this town of Shechem, and I'm, you know, who knows what the pronunciation is. But there is a lot of history in this place. We've talked about it before, uh, but one of the earliest times that uh, this town is mentioned is back in Genesis uh, chapter 12. Um, when Abram was called from the land of Ur and came into Canaan, uh, this was one of the first places where he stopped. And Genesis 12.5 or 12.6 says, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, there were Canaanites in the land. This is about 600 years before when Joshua is writing. This is a long time. In chapter 33 of Genesis, we hear about it again um, in Abram's grandson Jacob. Um, after he had uh, been estranged from his brother Esau and then came back together and, and they had a bit of a reconciliation there, uh, he also came to this place and, and he pitched, pitched his tent there and he bought this piece of land for quite a goodly piece of money, a hundred pieces of silver. And he built an altar, altar there and uh, named it as a place of God. And so here we are um, in Joshua, and this was designated, okay, so the, the town that was run by the Canaanites was captured, of course, and it was part of the allotment to uh, the Levites. This was one of the cities that was given uh, to the tribe of Levi, and it was also one of those cities of refuge that we talked about, where you could, if you had, uh, say, killed somebody accidentally, you could go there as a city of refuge that we talked about previously. So um, we also found that this was a place uh, between the two mountains. I showed a picture of the one time, and, and you could see this valley down there. Well, that's where it was at the foot of Mount Ebal. So uh, an historic place, but that's where um, that's where Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Joshua calls everyone together. So let's kind of walk through this chapter, and then we're gonna we're gonna hit the 
kind of the big ideas and then we're going to dive in in various places. So let's, let's look at what actually happens in this story. So in verse 1, uh, Joshua uh, summons um, all of the uh, nation uh, together, uh, all of the nation that is on the west side of the Jordan. And um, beginning in verse 2, uh, he speaks for God and we hear uh, a synopsis of God's dealing with this group of people as a nation. Verse 2, it says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And in my Bible, there starts a quote there. And, you know, what a privilege it is. We, we look at everything in Scripture as the Word of God. But here we have actually um, the words, the exact words of God. And that, that's kind of cool. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan, they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And he went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by use, your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat of the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. What a great synopsis of God's care and protection. There's God's sovereignty there. That's God's choosing Abram from the very start. I mean, this is just a great synopsis of what has happened with the um, children of Israel to this point. Uh, in some ways, it's reflected in that great sermon that Stephen preached where he went back and, and talked about God's dealing uh, throughout history. So now we come to the crux of it. Verse 14, as Joshua takes on the voice again, and he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. 
and the people answered and, and as we get into this sex, second section here, um, here we have God's command through Joshua about what to do in light of God's relationship within uh, these centuries that have passed. And uh, so here we're going to get uh, the command, and as you'll see, uh, he is wanting to pull out from them a commitment. And he's wanting to, to really verify that that they're not just giving lip service to this commitment, that they really, 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 really mean it. And you'll see that as we move on. It says, verse 16, Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out all... Before us, all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So, the content there is exactly what Joshua wanted to hear, right? They said all the right words. But, as most of you know, it's not just about the words, right? It's about the tone, it's about the context. I forget the analysis. Maybe Anna would know this. Uh, they say when you're talking with someone, only about 10% of the meeting is conveyed through the words that you say. Everything else is tone and body language and expression and all that other stuff. So you get the idea in these next verses that Joshua wasn't really convinced. Verse 19, it says, But Joshua said to the people, You're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done you good. In other words, he sees some hypocrisy there that makes him question what they're actually saying. Well, now here's the reply. No, Joshua, we really mean it. Verse 21, And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So we have the challenge. That famous, probably the most famous verse in the book, right? Choose this day who you're going to serve. And their response was the right response. Maybe Joshua wasn't convinced, but they had the right response. And then, again, in the overview of the chapter, these last four verses, um, we'll see the death of Joshua the burial of the bones of Joseph, and the death of Eleazar, 
the priest. Uh, so 29, we'll just finish these up, and I apologize for so much reading. Just want to get through this in a high level. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Just make that point. Did you catch that? So 600 years before, Jacob, the grandson of Abram slash Abraham, had bought this land, and now here they are, centuries later, and that's where Joseph is buried. Uh, and then verse 33, And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So now we, we've kind of completed the... The first generation, you might say, of the redemption team, Moses and Aaron. And here we have the death of Moses' successor, Joshua, and the death of Aaron's successor, Eleazar. So it wraps up um, the book. So let's kind of work through it. Um, looking at these three sermons, and it's helpful to kind of think of Joshua giving this final message consistently um, as, as he prepares for his latter day. In Joshua 22, remember, he gave this message essentially to the Transjordanian tribes, the tribes that were going to be on the east side of the Jordan. Before they left and crossed back over, he told them, job well done, you've you kept your commitments, um, but serve the Lord your God. Um, it says uh, in verse 4 of chapter 22 and now the Lord God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them therefore turn go to your tents in the land where your possession lies verse 5 only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that the Moses the servant commanded you to, lo to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways Cling to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. Last week we looked at, he had gathered together the leaders of the tribes on the west side. We know the sermon that he gave them, and that the same sermon, same thing. God chose you, chose you, God has blessed you, now you need to choose him. God chose you, now you need to choose him. Same message. So um, the, uh, the challenge, uh, of course, that we've had, where's Jesus in this passage? And I think we see Jesus in lots of places. Um, I think um, we see Jesus in this whole telling of the story of God's provision and God's grace toward these people. Uh, we see Abram, who was being chosen by God and God administered grace to him while he was still a sinner 
in the same way that God chooses us, not of any goodness that we bring, but as Romans 5, 8 says, while we were sinners, God commends his grace toward us, and of course Jesus is the source of that. We see Jesus is in the story of Isaac, uh, that son who at his father's direction put the wood on his back and went to the mountain for the purpose of a sacrifice. Beautiful story of Jesus. We've heard about the redemption of the people of Israel, and we see Jesus in that Passover lamb who saved the people who accepted the blood and that protected them from the angel of death as that they were about to leave. Um, and I suspect that when we hear and we, when we've heard throughout Joshua of the um, conquering of the land and the battle after battle after battle where God has essentially cleaned house, I think that's a picture of future Jesus. You know, very often we see mild and meek mannered Jesus with the sheep laying at his feet and the kids up on his lap and all that. That's right, but there's going to come a point where we're going to see big bad Jesus, right, with the sword, on the horse, cleaning house. And I think uh, part of Joshua is a picture of that, that future Jesus. Um, so Jesus is all through Joshua and certainly all through this chapter. Um, there was um, an interesting quote I came across just as a, a side note uh, from um, the apologist and, and scholar Francis Schaeffer where he talks about the, the wording that Joshua uses in that famous phrase, um, as for me and my house, I'm making the choice to serve the Lord. Um, I'll quote this. It says, this was the character of Joshua. He chose, and he chose, and he chose, and he kept right on choosing. He understood the dynamics of choice, that there was a once and for all choice, and also this existential choice as well. Thus his word to the people was not an affirmation puffed up on the spur of the moment. It was deeply embedded in Joshua's comprehensive of what is required of a person made in the image of God uh, we obey God by choice and we have to continue choosing. Another um, big idea as I went through this and I thought about those three sermons, there seems to be way more emphasis that he has and way more concern that he has about the inward condition of the people that he's talking with rather than their outward condition. Except for maybe Jericho and the aftermath of the battle of Ai, we don't get a whole lot of information about his interactions with them. But now, over and over and over again, what's he telling them? You got to choose God. You got to put away the foreign idols. You got to choose God. You got to get rid of all those idols. Over and over. You got to think he's, he's perceptive and he's picked up on some things that 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 there's some inward there's some heart work that still needs to happen so that's the story that's the overview so um, let's apply this a little bit so uh, there were several uh, 
several things that occurred to me as I reflected on this. Number one, we're never through confronting sin, and we're never through confronting our own sin nature. Um, It's true. I accept Jesus once, and that's enough, and God sees me as righteous from that point forward. No debate about that. But I'm still confronted by sin and temptation, and I still have to confront sin myself, and I still have to deal with that. Um, And we see this reflected in the nation of Israel. In Genesis 35, okay, this is back to the Jacob and Esau days. Look what Jacob said after he had reconciled with Esau and he built an altar to God. Jacob gathered up his household and he said, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves, change your garments, change your clothes. 400 some years later in Exodus, we have the whole golden calf thing, right? They get a little fearful, they get a little insecure, go bonkers, build this calf. Verse 21 of Exodus 32, it says, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Now, of course, this is one of the stupidest things that you'll ever read in Scripture. Blah, 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 blah. So I said to them, If any of you have any gold, take it off. And they gave me all this gold, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. It's amazing. I mean, you know. They were brothers, right? I mean, Moses, like, knew, you know. Aaron, you're just not that good. Um, I threw this in the fire, and out came this calf. Anyway, um, this is all about um, them creating their own gods. Their own gods. Flash forward all the way to the New Testament, and we have, you know, our great uh, guy Paul saying, even in Romans 7, that classic passage about his own battle with sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So, we're not that much advanced than Paul. We're not that much advanced than the people of Joshua's time. And we don't need to be guilty of this chronological snobbery where we look down our nose about people in the past and we swear up and down we would never do such a thing. We're never through confronting sin and our own sin nature. We all have to continue to choose. The second thing. Uh, Last week I said, it's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? So you could expand on that and say, you haven't won the race if you drop the baton. Especially in a relay race, which we are in a relay race, right? We grabbed that baton from the people that came before us, and our job is to pass it forward. And if we drop the baton, we haven't finished the race. 
If you flip over to Judges, just a page or two to the right, and go to uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 6, and we see a little recap of the latter verses of Joshua. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, this is essentially same time frame as what we just read. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Okay, so they kept their promise, did they not? They did. And all the leadership who was alive after Joshua died they kept their promise. But look what it said. Verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How in the world did this other generation arise that they didn't know the work of the Lord and what they had done for Israel. How could they not know that? They didn't tell them. They didn't tell them. How did, how did this whole command that Joshua, this whole challenge that they put out there, how did it start? With God himself saying, Here's your history. Here's your history. It started with Abram across the Euphrates, worshiping pagan idols. I chose him. I bestowed grace on him. I brought him to Canaan. I took that whole story. How in the world could these elders not tell their children that story? It didn't take long, even if you left out the details. But there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And one of the worst verses, verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. So, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. And you can't finish if you don't pass the baton. So no matter what stage of life you're in, if you're not thinking about how you're going to pass that baton to the next generation, you are not done. Doesn't matter if you're retired. Doesn't matter if you decided not to teach, if you're just going to coast for a while in church. Between you and God, and I'm not saying that you guys do that. What really matters is what's the next generation going to do with what you left them? You don't want that on your hands. Number three. Sometimes, I might say oftentimes, sin doesn't begin with open rebellion. It begins with complacency. So this stuff that happened in Judges 2, how did it start? Look up a few verses to Judges 1. Verse 28. The first part of Judges starts with 
you know, Joshua had said, you know, there's some unfinished business, there's still land to conquer, still work to be done, right? Well, Judges, the first first, uh, chapter, talks about those actions. And then in verse 28, it says, When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Do you guys remember the command where God commanded them to take captives of the nations and to make slaves out of them? Do you all remember that verse? No, you don't remember that verse. God did, that wasn't the command, right? The command was, wipe them out, obliterate them. What they do, they said, you know, some perfectly good help here. If we kill them, it's kind of bloody, and here's a lot of help here. We could just make slaves out of them, let them do our work for us. Why not? This was how it all started. They got complacent. Um, they didn't want to do what God told them. They just want some slaves. They want things to be easy. And as a general rule, bad things happen when we try to get out of the work that God has for us. What are we on? Number four. Everyone chooses. Everyone chooses. Um, there is a reason that the first commandment is the first commandment, right? Exodus 21, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Ironic, right? So what they do? They enjoyed slavery so much that they were going to make slavery, slaves out of somebody else. Anyway. Verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. And what have we seen in this passage? What was the command? Get rid of all those foreign gods. Get rid of all those foreign gods. Get rid of all those foreign gods. You know, you really need to get rid of all those foreign gods. Right? Even after all these battles, Joshua still had to tell them, just like Jacob had to tell his household 400 and something years before, you know, you really need to get rid of all those foreign gods. There's a reason the first commandment is the first commandment. Everybody chooses a God. And it matters which one you choose. So, as we, again, pull it even a little closer to home, it's perfectly fair for us to ask, who are our gods nowadays? What are our gods nowadays? Money. Money? Entertainment. Entertainment? It's number one, in my opinion, of what we're enduring today. All right. We heard another one. The, the greatest generation dropped the baton. Well, you're not done yet, right? What was this one? Somebody have another one? I thought power. I heard some. Power. Money, entertainment, power. Prestige. Prestige, fame. Computer. 
All right, computers. Careful. Just doing our sales. Say that one, Dad. Just focusing on our sales. Living for yourself. Well, they, there were lots of gods, okay? It wasn't one dominant god. The Canaanites had lots of gods, and they all had little, um, uh, little bits of power. They weren't the one true all-powerful god. They all had their own thing. So, like, Baal was like the storm god. So, if you're, in, if you're a farmer, you're worried about the weather, if you want your crops to be good, you might do some stuff with Baal. If uh, there uh, Asherah was God of fertility, so if... In other words, it's just an activity for them, pretty much. Well, why we choose false gods is a kind of a whole other topic, but if we choose these small gods, these one pole, we tend to think that we can influence them. We think that something that we... That if there are things that we do that can somehow manipulate them, uh, make them do what we want. And so, uh, almost always, false gods are, are smaller and influenced by things that we do and that sort of thing. We want gods we can control and exert power over. Convenient gods. Gods of convenience. You guys are right on my list. <laughs> so, you've identified them. So the question is, What are the downsides of some of these gods? Um, and you can work through this. I'll go through my list just to wrap things up. I had materialism on my list. What does that do? If we're all about accumulating things for ourselves, then you know that kind of separates us from seeking our daily bread from our Father, right? If we accumulate enough then we don't have to depend on God for our sustenance. We can kind of do it ourselves if we are affluent enough. For convenience, I think like these people that took the slaves, um, when we pursue convenience, we, we do things out of expediency, things that seem to be pragmatic, things that might feed into our own laziness and doing things our way instead of God's way things that are convenient. And maybe we take shortcuts that might be maybe questionable. Fame. Probably said. Um, this feeds our ego, right? And so we get our identity from what people say about us. It makes us feel good, right? Where should, I, where should our identity come from? It's not about what people say about us, right? It's about what God says about us. And there's really only two things he says about us, right? We're either in Christ and righteous, or we're not in Christ and we're unrighteous. Our identity comes from Christ. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter how many... Twitter followers you have, it doesn't matter how many friends you have on Facebook, it doesn't matter how many awards you get when you finish your work. It's, you know, how are things between me and God? 
our identity should come from. That's the danger of fame. And then somebody mentioned power, influence. Um, I think this one's especially bad, especially uh, maybe for Americans. You know, we, we can get the false impression that we are much more in control of our circumstances than we really are, right? We get the idea that we can make decisions and we can do this or that, and ultimately, we serve a God who is sovereign, and he has way more important things and we are maybe not as in control as we think we are, um, certainly in our own power. And if we pursue power and influence, um, that's really opposite than seeing our security in God and, and seeing our, our walk as a faith journey instead of an accumulation journey or a struggle for power or wealth or fame or any of that kind of stuff. It's all about dependence on God. So this thing of have no other gods before me, it's because he knew we're going to try to find substitutes for that, which is so silly because who wants the best for their children but their father, right? And, you know, ultimately God is our father who wants to give us good gifts. He doesn't want us looking to somebody else to get fake stuff that's going to break, that's only going to hurt us, that's only going to confuse us. He wants good gifts. Um, I guess I'll wrap up there. I think it's important that we tell the story of that good father to whoever will listen, especially those that are coming after us. Uh, we need to pass it to the next generation. Final thoughts as we wrap up, Joshua? If not, we'll pray. Father, I thank you that you are a good daddy, that you love us, that you sent your son to die for us, to give us a true identity, to give us true security, to give us a purpose. Father, encourage us, support us, strengthen us, and help us finish strong for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. It shouldn't take but...